This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. My favorite murder. That's Georgia Hardstark. That's Karen Kilgariff. And the winds are blowing. Hey, the winds are blowing over Santa Ana winds. <laughs> spooky. It's spooky Halloween. Yeah. Right here in January. Oh, you know what? Right off the bat, I wanted to tell you something spooky that happened at my house recently. Hell yes. Okay. This is terrible. It was terrible. I hate it. Oh, oh. But it's good. I'm home alone. Vince is out, like hanging out. So it's like late at night and I get into bed <laughs> upstairs and suddenly from downstairs, my wireless speaker starts <laughs> blasting music. Oh no. Blasting Elton John. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, at it's least like, it's not like, it wasn't like terrible, scary music. But, yes, it wasn't in Agata Defeata. Right. But still, what Elton John? Because Crocodile Rock can be scary yeah. depending on the mood you're in. I don't even remember at this point because I was so terrified. I like I had to get out of bed and I was like, there's an answer. There's a like logical answer for this. Like this, there's no because you have to be on the Wi-Fi to use our wireless speaker, right? Sure. That's like I thought maybe Vince was playing a trick on me out at the bar or something like that. Hilarious trick with Elton John. You know, the yeah. way you guys joke around. Scaring the shit out of me. So I had to go downstairs <laughs> and, and the cats were freaked out, which is always my sign that something's wrong, you know? Yo, and yeah. it was fucking blasting. And I had to like tiptoe over to it and unplug it. I made Vince come home immediately, of course, but it was terrifying. Why did that happen? I, why did it happen? I don't know. Do you know. have Elton John on your phone? No, that's the other thing is I've never like listened to Elton John on my phone. It wasn't like it picked up. I mean, maybe a neighbor accidentally. I need to know what song it was. Ah, what was it? Slow or Fast? Tiny Dancer? Was, was it, it Tiny like Dancer? Hacky Elton John? Was it a yeah. fucking deep cut? Someone saved my life tonight? No, it was hacky. So it was like fast. Oh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. That's what it was. <laughs> Is that a song of it? We're not saying that Elton John isn't one of the greatest performers of our time. Sure, but blasting. So I have a musical ghost at my house. That is scary because there's a poignancy to that song. Right. That you don't want to be shocked awake with. <laughs> Absolutely not. And then when I was unplugging it, I was like, if this doesn't stop when I unplug it, I'm leaving this house and never coming back. Like, what <laughs> if I had unplugged it and just kept going? <laughs> just lighting a match and fucking leaving. This is the next Conjuring film. This <laughs> is, you are writing it. You're writing it. Poor man's copyright. I declare it right now. I love it's just it. like a wireless speaker that goes crazy. Because, you know, that in some of the movies, there's like a doll or, you know, there's Raggedy Ann mm -hmm. or whatever, really scary. It's time to update <laughs> that horror movie trope. And how scary are 
either wireless speakers or Alexas that are eavesdropping on you all day long. Absolutely. Okay. Seriously, poor man's copyright. Okay. Our movie, Uh our next project is going to be about an Alexa that kills the family (laughs) that she works for. (laughs) Or makes them like kill each other somehow. Yes, drives them insane. She basically is the demon like from the Amityville horror film. Yeah. Have you seen the movie Megan yet? No, I want to see it really bad. I'm surprised. Yeah, that's a really you movie. Well, I was up in Petaluma. Like I was doing family stuff. So Megan is very, feels like a very rebellious friend. Yeah. plan. Yeah. Did you see it? No, no. I don't want to see it. I want you to, I want your (laughs) update opinion about it. I will tell you this. I saw the Megan trailer when we went to see The Menu, which is that movie. I watched that. Did you like it? I loved it. The trailer for Megan rolled before that movie and the audience yeah. went crazy. <laughs> it was like electricity in the room where I was like, they have finally thought like, they're just getting so good at this type of movie because they were so formulaic for yeah. so long. And playing with that kind of format yeah. is so great. It's just like, how scary is that doll that's dancing? Totally. That is... It's scary and hilarious at the same time. Yes. You know? It's like, I can't take this seriously, but I'm terrified of it. It's terrifying and you go, oh, this is like a new fear. This isn't the old fear Mm -hmm. of like, I'm going to die on a dark highway. Mm -hmm. It's not, it has not, it's almost like you're like, oh, this is the new, like, this is computer fear. This is social media fear. This is like, yes. This is the monster robot influencer Mm. that, that mercilessly makes you feel terrible through your phone. Yeah, that's exactly or right. Or through yeah. a movie. Yeah, fuck, man. Deep, poignant. Movie corner. <laughs> I have a recommendation really quick. Okay. Because I did so much driving recently, the podcast Chameleon, who had that first season about that unbelievable scammer that was like international. Mm-hmm. He was hiring people for movies that didn't exist, that whole thing. If you haven't heard season one of Chameleon, do yourself a favor. Season five now, they, so there's four more seasons, wow. tons of great stories. But I just listened to season five and it's called Dr. Dante. Uh-huh. And it is about a hypnotist from who got his start in like the late 60s, I believe, early 70s. Mm-hmm. And his life story and the th- way he conducted his business as a professional hypnotist uh-huh. is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. Okay. Like it's it's a total binge it's such great storytelling. It's a real person. The, he actually appears in it, so it's not like oh. his story's being told around him or yeah. anything. It's just unbelievable. Okay, I'm down. It seems like lying. If it was in a movie, you'd be like, <laughs> there's no way this happened. It's so Is it good. positive or negative? Is it like feel goody or is it like, oh my God? No, you know, in the trailer, I'll try to recreate very quickly the trailer, which was like professional hypnotism, permanent makeup, Attempted murder. Okay. Crazy story that you're like, wait, I'm sorry, what what is he doing now? He's a chameleon. He's a chameleon. He's a con man, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And he's one of those people that's just always got something going and he's very successful. He's like the first person to scam in this specific way. You have to hear it. It's yeah. just okay. amazing. Okay. I will. I'll so hear good. It. Yeah. Cool. What else you got? The only other news I have is just the crazy fact that the dorm dad, Lawrence Ray, was sent to prison finally. And he basically moved in with his college-age daughter in the dorms Mm -hmm. and kind of took over her and her roommates' lives. And it's a crazy story. And he was finally sentenced to 60 years in prison. Wow, 60 years. That's great for his victims so they can finally move on. 
he needs to not be around people, especially anyone young or vulnerable. Yeah. He's got cult leader vibes. Ooh, such a crazy story. Yeah. Anyway, okay. any, what's new with you? Anything, anything to report? I've been falling asleep to the podcast. Nothing much happens, which I've mentioned in the past, but it helps me so much that I just want to shout it to the moon because it's just <laughs> like, I have bad insomnia. It drives me fucking crazy. I put that podcast on where she tells a story that she wrote where nothing much happens. They're so charming. Like the most lovely little stories. And I am asleep before like five minutes are up. It's great. Yeah. So Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And I listen to it. Through, like I wake up and I'm awake. I can't fall back to sleep. I list, put it back in, fall asleep. It's the best. Nice. Oh, that's a good recommendation. Yeah. That's it. Should we do some ERM highlights then? And sure. Keep this train a moving. Yeah, let's do it, guys. There's a lot of big exactly right news this week. Tenfold More Wicked season seven is out Monday, January 30th. Kate Riggler Dawson is a machine. I mean, <laughs> just like an Olympic champion yes, podcaster. That's right. Amazing. Listen to Tenfold More Wicked Season 7. Um, this season is called The Annihilator, and Kate Winkler-Dawson takes us to the 1800s, Austin, Texas, for the story of a man who witnessed the aftermath of a notorious serial killer who went on to kill in virtually the same way. Fascinating. Also, Aaron and Aaron from this podcast, Will Kill You, are back for their fifth season with an episode on RSV or respiratory syncytial virus, uh, which premieres Tuesday, January 31st. And also in the MFM store, we have a pop socket, an enamel pin, and a patch that are all new to remind anyone who needs it that the patriarchy still sucks. So go check those out and get yourself a pop socket or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why you keep asking me. I don't know. Get whatever advice. you want. There's socks. We sell socks. Like, just go. You can have those. I'm wearing my favorite murder socks right now. Are you? Are they cozy? Yeah. They are very cozy. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. 
Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens. And don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the Detective Club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Okay, so I go first this week, um, <laughs> as we now know, because we just messed it up and yeah. had to re-record it. So today I'm going to tell you a story about what is considered by many to be the perfect murder. It's the classic English whodunit and has a very Agatha Christie feel to it. So this murder happened almost 92 years ago and it remains mm. unsolved, but I have a bunch of theories, so we're going to figure it out today. Um this is the story of William H. Wallace and the murder of his wife, Julia. Mm. So the main sources used in today's story are an article from the Julia Wallace Murder Foundation, a Liverpool Echo article by Amelia Bona and Annie Williams, a chesshistory.com article by Edward Winter, interestingly, mm. and an article from the Unredacted and the rest you can find in the show notes. So it's the middle of winter, 1931 in Liverpool, England your favorite place. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And it's an especially cold and gray winter that year and the Great Depression has just begun. So Liverpool, which was once a booming metropolis and port city called by many the New York of Europe, is now finding many of its citizens unemployed and in desperation as poverty sweeps the country and the world. So this guy, William H. Wallace, and his wife, Julia, are lucky that William has a steady job as an insurance agent. They live in a modest house and are friendly with their neighbors. They're an older couple who've been married for almost 16 years. William is 52 years old, and it's believed... So there's not a ton of info about Julia. It's believed that she is 69 years old. Her background before marrying William is a little murky, unfortunately. But we know that both have chronic health issues and they take care of each other. She has consistent respiratory issues, which I think fucking everyone in England did, at, you know, before now. Yep. Kate Winkler Dawson <laughs> wrote a book on it about how bad it got in the 50s. That's right. Because the coal burning and the whatever the fuel that they were burning yeah. was causing. Yeah. And he has a chronic kidney condition. So they keep to themselves mostly. Julia is nervous around strangers, which like, hi, welcome to this podcast. But they occasionally host music nights for their friends. He plays violin, she plays the piano. So a seemingly happy couple. She has worked as a governess most of her life teaching children. And she's a little shy and described as timid in social situations. But by most accounts, William and Julia are happily married and very loving some people remember them as a peculiar couple. I hate that word. And one former friend calls their marriage loveless and strained. So there's varying accounts to what they were actually like. It's January 19th, 1931. It's the evening and William is headed to a meeting of the Liverpool Central Chess Club at a local cafe where he's scheduled to play a game of chess. But before he arrives, someone calls the cafe looking for him. When William gets there about 20 minutes later, he's handed a message from someone named R.M. Qualtro. 
this stranger has requested to meet William the following day to discuss insurance, which is his job, at 7.30 p.m., um, and he gives an address on Menlove Gardens East. William is confused. He doesn't know this person. He's never heard the name. Uh, He doesn't recognize the address, but money's tight and a potential commission from meeting with new customers seems like better than no commission at all. So he talks a bit more about the strange call with his friends and talks about the last name being odd. And uh, he, that evening after chess, he goes home to his wife. But the following day, William is making his rounds at work, visiting clients in their homes across Liverpool to collect their insurance payments, which he later stores in a cash box that he keeps at home. He's described that day as pleasant by everyone he meets with, despite the cold, rainy day. And Julia is visited by her sister-in-law that day. They catch up and gossip, even discussing some recent burglaries that happened in the area. After William gets home from work, the couple eat again, and somewhere between 6.30 and 6.40, the boy delivering milk to the neighborhood has a short conversation with Julia at the door. So we know at that point she's alive. At around 6.45 p.m., William heads out for this mystery meeting with this person, Qualtro. William has to take three different trams to reach the area of the city that he thinks that this Men Love Gardens East is in. He talks to several conductors and passengers while traveling, asking for help finding the address. He asks people on the street like to help him find this address. No one's ever heard of such a place or such a person. He finds a city directory to look up the address and the name, and William starts to feel uneasy when he realizes he's been sent to an address that doesn't exist to meet a person who isn't real. Mm. So what is going on? Uh, After 45 minutes of searching, he heads home. And he arrives back at around 8.45 p.m., He tries the closest entrance, which is the front door of the house, even though he usually uses the back door. The front door is locked, which is very unusual, and he knocks and no one answers. He tries his key, but the door has been deadbolted from the inside. He goes to the back door. It's locked. He knocks, no answer, tries his key, and for some reason it doesn't work. He goes back to the front door, and um, he's getting concerned when he runs into his next-door neighbor's. The Johnstons ask him what's going on, and when they learn of the mysterious locked doors, they tell him to try it one more time, and when he tries the back door again, this time it opens easily. So was he lying about it? We don't know. The Johnstons offer to stick around while he checks out the house to make sure everything is all right, and William enters the house alone. As the neighbors wait in the back, they can see him moving slowly through the house, turning on lights and lighting matches to see in the dark rooms, and they can hear him calling out softly for Julia. But suddenly, William returns to the back door, screaming to the Johnstons, come and see, she's been killed. Julia Wallace is dead, face down on the floor of the parlor, um, which is like their small living room, with her feet towards the fireplace. She's been bludgeoned to death, and blood spatter covers the walls up to seven feet off the floor. Oh, my God. Her head wound is so extreme that there's brain matter on the floor. The Johnstons immediately go into triage mode, checking her pulse and temperature, but William seems to be in shock. He keeps repeating, they've finished her, they've finished her, look at the brains. Oh. And there's actually a photo of the crime scene. No, 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 no. Don't look at that. No, absolutely not. William initially requests a doctor, but the Johnstons decide it might be best to get the police because she's clearly dead. Then they leave the parlor, go to the kitchen to regroup, and William, at that point, realizes that one of the cabinet doors has been broken. It's where he hides his cash box, and inside he finds the cash box, but it's been robbed. Mm. 
about four pounds are missing, which in today's money is about $300. But other valuables are left behind, including money in Julia's purse, which is in plain view of the cabinet with the cash box in it. So finally, the police come. And in the meantime, William prepares dinner for Julia's cat and pets the cat over and over. And the, quote, callous way he pets the cat is later used against him when he's tried for the murder of his wife. What? Yeah. So it's like one of those things of like, you're not reacting correctly to this murder. Right. That's pretty outside even any I've heard before, how you're petting a cat (laughs) is indicative of something. Like what? What did that have to look like for you to get like, we like petting a cat too heavily? I don't understand. But also, who is the one that said that? Like the person in the room, the cop that was talking to him? It must have been, yeah. I think it's a stretch. Do you think it's weird to start feeding the cat while the police are being called over and stuff? Yes, but like we've said a bunch of times, like if you're just in weird auto mode because you've seen your wife's brains, for God's sake, like it's extremely violent, gruesome murder. Mm -hmm. And if you had nothing to do with it and walked into a dark house Mm -hmm. and saw that, you would be in serious shock. Yeah. At the very least. You're on pilot mode and you just... Just doing weird stuff. Yeah. Because that's, you have to move your hands and you're freaking out and... They're questioning you, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I could see it where this is the thing I'm supposed to do right now. Or, totally. I mean, yeah. Totally. When the police arrive, several discoveries are made. They take a closer look at Julia's body and realize that she's lying on a raincoat and both her dress and the raincoat are partially burned, possibly from the gas fire that was burning in the fireplace that was nearby. Investigators also see that the Wallace's bedroom looks like it's been rifled through as if someone had been searching for something, but nothing is missing. Police interview William and the Johnstons, and the investigation of the murder of Julia Wallace officially begins. From the start, police and forensic investigators fumble this investigation. At the time, the police force in Liverpool is significantly understaffed because of a major strike in 1919. So many detectives aren't properly qualified for the jobs they have and make mistakes with the Wallace investigation. They stomp all over the crime scene. It's the same thing we hear all the time. One officer even turns up drunk, which is fun. That has nothing to do with the, <laughs> with the strike. I mean, right. That's pretty standard, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he flushes a toilet that inexplicably has blood in it, so it destroys whatever evidence that could have been. Mm. Still, investigators search the house and find no murder weapon or new evidence besides the bloody toilet, um, messed up bedroom, and robbed cash box. A forensics expert in Liverpool University is called to the scene and based on the stiffness of Julia's body, determines that her time of death would have been about 8 p.m. that evening. But even in 1931, this was considered an outdated forensic technique. So all that investigators really know at this point is that Julia had been murdered inside a locked house somewhere between 6.45 p.m. when she was last seen and 8.45 p.m. when he got home. Four pounds have been stolen. There's no murder weapon or sign of forced entry. And William has the perfect alibi. Remember, he was on the tram, like talking to a lot of people, which I think we always think of as suspicious, like Mm -hmm. trying to make it obvious that you were there and they'll remember you. Right. Or he could have been lost and actually asking for directions. Yeah, because it really does seem like there is a possibility that someone sent him away for an extended period of time to meet no one. 
right. to go nowhere and meet no one. So it would make sense that he would be like, yeah, can you help me out? Wow, this is this address not here? Like you'd need to be interacting with people totally. if that's the position you're in, right? I would think. But from the beginning, William is the prime suspect. Despite the numerous witnesses confirming they had seen him on the night in question, sealing his alibi, police believe he must have committed the murder before leaving the house to go on this wild goose chase. So further investigation shows that the call placed to the chess club that night from R.M. Qualtro saying, come see me the next night, was made from a public telephone box just 400 yards away from the Wallace house. Ooh. And it was 20 minutes before he got there. That telephone box is also directly next to the tram stop that William would have used to get to his chess club. So police theorized that William placed the call himself using a disguised voice. And that whole point of that was to get himself an alibi. Okay. So before he left the house, I think he had, he might have killed her. Yep, I see. Police also believe that William had enough time in roughly 10 to 20 minutes to kill Julia, clean up, that night, get to the tram and board the tram. But William has chronic kidney issues. They're pretty significant. He's not in good health. The idea that he was able to commit this murder so quickly is hard to believe. Remember, Julia was last seen by the milk delivery boy around 6.35 p.m. An eyewitness remembers seeing William on the second tram of his journey a little after 7 p.m., that proves that he must have left the house around 6.50 at the latest in order to catch the tram on time. Investigators recreate the journey from the Wallace home to the tram stop several times to prove that he could have made it in that small amount of time, but they use young police officers who are running at full speed. Yeah, So okay. You know, it's it's not plausible. Also, don't you think there would be witnesses remembering a dude who was running full speed to a tram? (laughs) Right. They don't even factor in like he would have had to clean himself up. He would have been covered in blood and he's not. Yes. Yeah, he'd have to run even faster. Exactly. he would have had to like take a shower or something. Right. And he has these chronic kidney issues, which I'm sure slows him down as well. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, he's arrested and charged with the murder of his wife. William is cooperative and quiet. He's perceived as cold and indifferent. His neighbors and acquaintances come forward and they talk about William's suspicious behavior around the time of his wife's death. For example, someone says they saw him crying in the street the day before the murder. And the way he pets the cat is also scrutinized as heartless. <laughs> That's evidence. Okay, but is he oversensitive or is he heartless? That's Those are conflicting right. stories about his character. Right. Cold, but he's crying in the street. Like, which one is it? You hate everything this guy does. Also, can I just say this? You know, I'm a big fan of Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. I love Miss Marple. Mm-hmm. I'm a good friend of Poirot's. I've watched all those goddamn shows like four times. And the first thing I thought of was the idea that he couldn't get into his own house. And when he went to the neighbors, they were like, no, try it again. Yeah, it's weird. That's suspicious as hell. Totally. And then it worked. Okay. So, yeah, as you're saying that, it feels like the people the cops are talking to have a lot of sway over the situation. Yeah. And what if they what if they needed to have that sway because they're like, yeah, he he cries and he had, he really pets the cat hard. <laughs> like that's what they're accepting as like a negative character analysis from the neighbors. Yeah. Where it's like, why aren't the neighbors trying to defend him if he's their friend? Totally. And everyone's saying they had a good relationship. And his stony demeanor and lack of emotional expression, they make him look suspicious to everyone, of course. Except for when he's in the street crying. (laughs) Yeah. So doesn't that balance out his emotional expression? (sighs) Like if you can't do it at home, but you get it out over by the tram, 
Like, isn't that enough? It's like they want a performance in court. They want you just to be performative. And then they'd call you performative, probably, or overly emotional. A little bit. (laughs) So in April of 1931, prosecutors present the case against William to a jury. It's a packed courtroom. It's a huge case. It's later determined that the prosecution's opening statement is riddled with mistakes, but William's lawyers do nothing and don't speak up for him. Mm. He continually declares he's innocent, but the jury doesn't take much time to deliberate before they come back with a unanimous guilty verdict. Shit. He's sentenced to death by hanging a month later. Oh my God. When the court clerk announces this, William replies with, I am not guilty. I cannot say anything else. Ugh. William's lawyers quickly appeal the conviction in a completely unprecedented legal decision, the Court of Criminal Appeal in London determines that there actually wasn't enough evidence to convict William of this crime. And they say that William's conviction is unreasonable or cannot be supported having regard to the evidence. So he's let out and he becomes a free man. So they overturn his conviction, which I think is the first time that happened. Wow. Yeah. William attempts to return to a (laughs) normal... What? Just the criminal court being like, so... So this thing about him petting the cat, can we talk about that? <laughs> yeah, London's like, hey, Liverpool, we got to talk. Yeah, you, it feels like you're overreacting about the cat. <laughs> um, so he's free. He tries to return to a normal life, but it's obviously very tough. He's shunned by old friends and former customers of his who are convinced he's guilty, thinks he got away with murdering Julia. And he's, meanwhile, still grieving his wife and physically mm-hmm. ill with this chronic kidney condition. So he ultimately moves away, changes jobs. He's getting constant hate mail and death threats even. I bet. And it said he declines a kidney operation that might have prolonged his life and instead dies in less than two years after his appeal. And he's buried next to Julia in Anfield Cemetery in Liverpool. So dozens of books have been written, some about this. It's still like kind of one of those seemingly locked door mysteries. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So people are fascinated by it. Some defend Wallace and believe he's innocent, while others attempt to prove he's a criminal mastermind who duped the police and got away with murder. This murder with no real motive and almost too good an alibi for the prime suspect. But in the decades after William died, the name of another suspect emerges. And I think this is just the murderer. (laughs) So this guy, Richard Gordon Perry, was a young man from Liverpool. He was an amateur actor. He was a petty criminal known for stealing and destruction of property. He sometimes worked with William at the insurance agency, filling in for him when William was too sick to work. So William and Julia got to know Perry really well. He visited the Wallace home many times. Though when Perry began subbing for William more regularly, money started to go mysteriously missing. William confronted Perry about this and ultimately reported these, quote, mistakes to the insurance agency, resulting in Perry being fired. Mm. So, notably, Perry performed in a local drama club that met in the same cafe as William's chess club, meaning he would have known about William's scheduled chess games, which were posted on a bulletin board. So he knew he was coming in that night. The night of the murder, Perry pulls into an all-night garage to get his car cleaned. News of the murder had already spread around town, and the garage attendant that evening named John Parks 
has already heard all about it. He notices how nervous Perry is acting that night. He begins to hose down the car and he's known Perry since childhood and he's always been afraid of him because he is supposedly a bully. So Parks does what he's told, but in the passenger compartment, Parks allegedly finds a leather glove soaked in blood. And Perry grabs it from him and says, if the police got that, they would hang me. He tells Parks about disposing of an iron bar down a drain somewhere nearby. Like, but why would he tell him all this, right? Like, seems a little outlandish. Yeah, like he he wants to tell on himself, you mean? Right, it's just some dude he's bullied all, or he's known since childhood, I guess. Like, and maybe he's not smart enough to kind of just keep it zipped and try to keep it under control. Like he's freaking out. This is his version of freaking out. Yeah, this is adrenaline going on. Mm -hmm. That's true. Was that a cricket? What's that? I don't know what that was. It's a very loud cricket. Hold me closer, tiny (laughs) Jane. Oh my God. I did not sleep that night. It was the most terrifying thing. Yeah, and also this guy doesn't mention these details until years later, so it's not totally credible. But Perry was investigated by police at the time of the murder due to his history of stealing and his relationship with the Wallaces. His alibis for both the night of the phone call and the night of the murder, they hold up until his death in 1980 when it's discovered that his alibis were fabricated. Oh. Yeah. So overall, the case against Perry is considered much stronger than the case against William. Agree. But sadly, the case remains unsolved. And the more you read about this case, the more questions actually arise. The details become confusing. I'm going to wrap this up with a quote from Raymond Chandler. He's the author of The Big Sleep and a famous true crime enthusiast. His detective novels and crime fiction are regarded as some of the best ever published. Chandler considered the Wallace case to be one of the most puzzling and interesting crimes ever committed. Mm. He wrote that the Wallace case was completely unrivaled when it comes to murder mysteries. He called it the impossible murder because Wallace couldn't have done it and neither could anyone else because of the locked doors. Mm-hmm. Chandler believed, like many others, that, quote, the Wallace case is unbeatable. It will always be unbeatable. And that is the story of William H. Wallace and the perfect, impossible murder of his wife, Julia Wallace. For that man to be in that position, to go through that loss, yeah. to get accused, yeah. and then basically to come out the other side and be like, forget it. I'll just stick with this kidney that sucks yeah. and dip early is so awful and dark. Yeah. And also, like, I understand what that quote means. Like, it's unbeatable. But that's the kind of thing where, like, when you watch enough, you know, Agatha Christie or Mm -hmm. whatever, it's like, but just one amazing detective that remembers every single thing that they hear and whatever, if they just could be in there, if the real Sherlock Holmes could be in there. Right, he would pick up on one little thing. Yes, or, like, put down the the assumptions of the day, Mm -hmm. which is a really ridiculous expectation. Like, it's too hard to do that when it's not being done. But that idea of like, instead of spending all that time trying to bend facts backwards and be like he was petting a cat really hard and that is actually leading us to this thing. It's like, no, hang in there a little longer and 
at least look at other people that were like around. Yeah, check alibis a little bit better and deeper. Just keep the options open for a tiny bit longer. It's like you always know the husband's going to be there. What if the killer was in the house when he tried the front and back door? He went around back to the front house and the killer unlocked the back door and escaped. And that's why it was unlocked the second time he tried it. Yeah, easily. Right? It's not a locked room mystery in that way. It's just, it's almost like a timing thing. Yeah. Where like, if somebody, say it was that guy that you're talking about, mm-hmm. got in, it was for revenge or he was much more deviant than anyone even knew he was. Yeah. He was a murderer or whatever. But yeah, that's all you'd have to do. He knew that guy's, he knew William's whole schedule. Yeah. So he was just like going to be prepared to run anyway. A lot of those psychopaths are super bold because they don't have any fear. Right. They don't get scared. They don't get freaked out. Yeah. They're just like, oh, I'll just hold my breath and wait here and then run out the back door. Right. (sighs) (laughs) I'm going to be thinking about that for a while Mm. though. So that's a good one. Good job. Tell me if you come up with any conclusions. Thank you. I'm absolutely convinced it's the neighbors and I've only heard one (laughs) factoid because I like... Many of the police in the stories that we hear love to jump to a conclusion and never come back off of it. Or was it the cat? That fucking cat. It was Mm. like, one more pet like this and I'm going to set you up for murder. Snap. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. Well, should we just roll on into the second story? Let's do it. Because this is going to be a big surprise for you. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you all about the legendary criminal herself, Ma Barker. Amazing. There is, if you want, once I'm done with this very slick and well put together overview. <laughs> but if you want to go do a deep dive on Ma Barker and the Barker Carpus gang, which is a bunch of her sons and Alvin Creepy Carpus, mm-hmm. last podcast on the left ha- has like the deep dive episodes about it. Yeah. On one episode. So the sources, um, the main sources uh, we use today are the book Ma Barker, America's Most Wanted Mother by Chris Enns and Howard Kazanchian, the book Public Enemies, America's Criminal Past by William Helmer and Rick Maddox, and a bunch of articles and documents from the FBI's website, 
That website is www.snitchesgetstitches.gov. <laughs> and the rest of the sources in our show notes if you want to go see. All right. Paint the picture. And it's the same picture you were just painting only oh. across the pond. Ah. It's the 1930s. Oh. America, and it's a very chaotic and difficult time for the majority of Americans. It's the worst years of the Depression era. Many major institutions are nosediving. By 1933, about half of the country's banks have failed. Mm. Think of it. Half of the country's banks have fucking closed. Totally. Taking all the people's money with them. So fucked up. Yep, that's right. And 15 million Americans are unemployed. Millions of people lose their entire life savings. <sighs> They're evicted from their homes. They wait in breadlines for food. Needless to say, people are furious. They're enraged at the Hoover administration, Wall Street, the upper class, and of course, at bankers. By 1932, riots and hunger marches are a constant presence mm. throughout the nation. This is also the era of the quote-unquote public enemy, which is one of J. Edgar Hoover's go-to terms. Um, he's the head of the FBI, and he's basically trying to negatively rebrand professional criminals like big-time bootleggers and bank robbers. But the problem with this is that many of these so-called public enemies are seen by the public who rightfully feel robbed by the establishment as folk heroes. Yeah. So... The book Public Enemies, America's Criminal Past notes that, quote, Americans in the Depression found something to admire in the bold and desperate men who only stole from the banks what the banks stole from the people. Hell yeah. It's so funny because like an era like this where you see it in movies all the time yeah. and stuff and you're like, John Dillinger, like, you know. Yeah. Like, you know these stories from a distance. Yeah. Bonnie and Clyde and all these people. And then it starts to make sense where you're like, oh yeah, that did have this rosy glow on it. Right. And it was because those people were usually like, well, we're totally at the bottom of the barrel, so we might as well just start robbing banks. Or robbing the robbers, essentially. Or robbing the robbers. Like, I don't know. It's now kind of relatable and in that way mm -hmm. where it's like, it's not misguided. It's yeah. actually, they were right to go like the uprising. Right. So of all those people that I just named, John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, Machine Gun Kelly, mm -hmm. there's also the one and only Ma Barker. Ma is the machine gun toting criminal mastermind who also happens to be an old lady. She's a paradox. She's unassuming. She's a little old lady, mm -hmm. but then she's also very, very, quote unquote, bad. Mm -hmm. In an extremely sensationalized 1936 Kansas City Star article, they summarize her criminal career by saying that she, quote, began her life with a hymn book in her hand and she died clutching a machine gun. Hmm. That imagery came from J. Edgar Hoover himself. It's factually very dubious. So let's actually get into the facts of Ma Barker's life okay. and her life story. So she's born in October 1873 to a big Scots-Irish family in the Ozarks, and they name her Arizona Donnie Clark. Cute. Arizona I love is it. her first name. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so they call her Ari for short, and her parents are farmers. They struggle to make ends meet. Some writers have described her and her family bluntly as hillbillies, but she is remembered as both a God-fearing religious girl who never misses a Sunday sermon and as a rebellious, intense kid who likes to defy her parents' authority. So in short, Ma Barker, Arizona Donnie Clark, grew up, she was a real spitfire, and that's how people remembered her. Nice. And she was also a true crime fan. Oh. She grew up, 
loving the true crime magazines really? that they made back in that day. Wow. Yeah, they all had um, cover stories of outlaws and bank robbers. And when Ari's just a kid, Jesse James and his gang passed through her little hometown during a getaway. Wow. And it was a huge deal for the locals. Of course, there was a huge class divide in the United States in the late 1800s. There was corruption in local politics and business and policing. And so to many poor Americans, outlaws like Jesse James are not seen as criminals. They're considered the people's bandits who shook their fist in the face of corrupt authority and attacked the symbols of wealth. So mm -hmm. kind of a similar thing happening in the 30s with your public enemies as is happening back then with the Jesse James gang, the, the Wild West. Interesting. So this firsthand experience with the James gang starts a childhood obsession with outlaws that never goes away for Ari. Her love for Jesse James is real. By September 1892, she's changed her first name to Kate. She felt like Arizona was a little too. She wanted to be a little more refined, I guess. Mm -hmm. And she marries a shy farmhand from Missouri named George Barker. George could not be more of Ari's opposite. They settle down together. They make a home. In 1894, Kate gives birth to their first child, Herman. And then two years later, she has another boy named Lloyd. Her third son, Arthur, goes by the name Doc. And he's born in 1899. And then in 1903, she has her fourth son, Freddie. Wow. Yeah, four boys in a row. <laughs> Good night. So... Kate Barker loves being a mother. She especially loves telling her boys the action-packed stories that she read mm. in her true crime magazines about the outlaws and the robberies and sticking it to the man, basically. Mm -hmm. They're entertaining, but she also sees herself in them. In the book, Ma Barker, America's Most Wanted Mother, they say, quote, the James boys were raised, like Jesse James' family, mm -hmm. were raised by strong, defiant mothers who made sure that they knew how to use a weapon and fight for what they wanted. Kate genuinely believes that Jesse James is a good role model for her sons. There's also, of course, a ton of rumors about Kate's parenting. It seems Kate can't see her children as anything other than perfect little angels. Mm. She has four boys. Yeah. So that's crazy. Yeah. She doesn't really discipline them at all. But to be fair, it's people in retrospect basically right. just critiquing her of like, how did you let these boys get this way? Right. But just because Kate's fascinated with outlaws doesn't mean she wants to raise criminals herself. She does her best raising four sons on a, like a farmer's modest income. Couldn't have been easy. Mm. Everyone knows. She also tells them Bible stories. She brings them to church regularly. So it's not like just, you know, right. she's got some religion in there. She's got the Holy Spirit in there. Mm. What we do know, though, is in the end, every single one of the Barker boys winds up with a criminal record, mm. and it starts pretty early <laughs> on. <laughs> so in 1910, when Herman's just a teenager, he's arrested in Missouri for what they called back then highway robbery. And then he's arrested again in 1915 for the same crime. Mm. Both times Herman's released indicates custody, and she does try to do something to fix it. She and George move the family to Tulsa, Oklahoma for a fresh start. So she's like, we're getting these boys out of the Ozarks and we don't want them getting in trouble. Yeah. It doesn't work. The boys immediately gravitate toward other kids with delinquency issues. So they're, you know, <laughs> that's who they are. You mean the fun ones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, they want to go smoke under a streetlight. Let of them. Of course they do. 
Before long, a group of 20 or so young men, including the Barkers, start calling themselves the Central Park Gang after their local hangout. But it's the it's Central Park in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So it's a right. little smaller than the one in New York City. <laughs> and the Barker Boys' criminal charges begin to stack up. There's assault with intent to kill, there's theft of a government vehicle, and there's a bunch of burglaries. Mm. In 1918, Doc even puts on his draft card that his occupation is, quote, in prison, <laughs> and that his employer is, quote, Tulsa County Jail. But each time one of her kids goes to court, Kate lobbies relentlessly for their release, and she must have been very persuasive at the time because all of her boys get off with a slap on the wrist, basically. Wow. But then by the early 20s, their crimes are escalating. In 1921, Doc, who ends up being the most brutal of the Barker boys, kills a security guard and mm. takes part in a robbery where an Oklahoma police captain winds up dead. Wow. And for the first time, there are real consequences. So Doc gets a life sentence. And that same year, Lloyd is sentenced to 25 years in federal prison for his part in the robbery of a mail wagon in Kansas. Then, in 1927, Freddie's arrested for taking part in a bank robbery. So, while all that's going on, mm -hmm. there's a lot of chaos in, in the Barker family. Also, at some point in the late 1920s, Kate separates from her husband, George. Mm -hmm. It's unclear why, but there are several reasons to imagine or choose from. For starters, Kate and George are extremely incompatible. They're pretty much opposites. Mm -hmm. She's very brash. He is a man of few words. Um, there's also rumors that his alcoholism is putting a big strain on the already stressful marriage. But the biggest stressor, of course, is probably that their sons are just straight up <laughs> career criminals. That's crazy. So then in 1927, 33-year-old Herman shoots a cop who later dies from his injuries. Mm. So Herman goes on the run, but in August of the same year, the, an officer recognizes Herman's car, tries to pull him over, and seeing no other way out, Herman takes his own life. Oh my God. So George then makes the long trip from Missouri to bury his son. He and Kate keep their distance. Uh, by now, she is in another a common law relationship with a man named Art Dunlop. Art is described as, quote, an alcoholic billboard painter. <laughs> <laughs> That's a description. That is a really insulting description. Yeah. How dare you? It's unclear if he and Kate are ever happy together, but, you know. Yeah. They shacked up. Mm -hmm. Art can't provide for Kate the way her sons did, so she lives in poverty for the next several years when she's with Art. But even with her new, I wrote CLBF, common law boyfriend, <laughs> Kate still relies on her boys. And Herman's widow, apparently, who Kate refers to as a hussy, mm. only as a hussy, doesn't call her by her actual name, takes care of her mother-in-law. Wow. When, when after she loses her son, so basically goes in and like shows like insane kindness wow. and takes care of her. Then in 1931, Freddie's paroled. Kate is ecstatic. She immediately welcomes him into her home that she shares with Art Dunlop, the alcoholic billboard sign painter. Mm -hmm. But Freddie doesn't come home alone. While he's in prison, he meets an inmate named Alvin Old Creepy Carpus. Wow, that's a nickname. <laughs> right. <laughs> that nickname is because of his dead expressionless eyes. Cool. Yeah. Great. Cool day. Oh, great. Come have dinner. Come on home with me. So he and Freddie have decided to team up. And before long, they attract nearly 30 other gangsters into what they are now calling the Barker Carpus Gang. 
And this includes Freddie's brother, Doc Barker, who was serving a life sentence, as you might remember, Mm -hmm. for murder. But after 13 years in prison, Freddie and Alvin are able to pull strings with corrupt officials and get him out on early release. Oh my, from a life sentence to 13 years? Yes. Those are some corrupt officials. Here's a little paragraph that Maren wrote in here. Okay. Maren McGlashan, the great researcher, she wrote, just a quick word on this kind of corruption. In the early 1930s, it's rampant in the United States. Some cities like St. Paul, Minnesota are even considered havens for bank robbers and bootleggers. In places like this, police chiefs and local politicians have been bought off and gangsters can operate in those city limits without fear of being arrested. Sup, St. Paul? Yeah, like (laughs) they were just completely lawless. If you had the money, you were fine. And you didn't have to worry about jail. So meanwhile, J. Edgar Hoover, you know, he's the head of the FBI. Mm -hmm which is only at this point existed for 10 years. So it's it's brand new. It was so new that they just called it back then the Bureau of Investigation. Before 1935, that was the name of it. Hmm. So we call it the FBI in this story, but... Right. For the early days, it's the Bureau of Investigation. It was just the BI at that point. Yeah, just the BI. Leave the Fs out. (laughs) So... So J. Edgar Hoover is looking for any excuse to expand the Bureau's powers. It isn't what the American public wants, but with corruption being so baked into government offices and institutions, people naturally just don't like this idea of federal cops. Mm -hmm. Like, they just don't trust that it's going to go well. But J. Edgar Hoover is famously, almost disturbingly driven, and the agency starts a full-on mission to take down the gangsters that they call public enemies. Hoover figures that this will prove the Bureau's competence and give the feds an opportunity to play the part of the hero. So the fledgling Barker Carpus gang flies under the FBI's radar for a long time. Mm -hmm. They pull off more than 10 bank robberies and countless car thefts. All these crimes net them millions of dollars. And on top of being big money makers, the Barker Carpus gang also gets a reputation for brutality, violence, and murder. Among their victims is alcoholic sign, billboard sign painter, Art Dunlop. No way. Yes, Kate's common law husband. In 1932, police find him dead in Wisconsin. He's been shot three times at close range. And it's believed that Alvin and Freddie, who only ever referred to Art as, quote, that old bastard, Mm. killed him because of his habit of sharing the gang's secrets while he was drunk. Oh, dude. He couldn't just be cool. Snitches. Get. Candy. Dot. Gov. (laughs) Kate moves on quickly. Um, Now she's enjoying the spoils of her son's criminal activity. The Barker boys and Alvin, who is like another son to her, They hold true those Jesse James morals and treat her like a queen. Mm -hmm. Kate wears nice clothes. She has furs. She gets jewels. She wants for nothing. But being the mother of gangsters is tough. So whenever the men leave for a robbery, Kate demands that they call the second they're safe. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Moms are going to mom, I guess. They got a mom, no matter what crimes you're pulling off. She would apparently sit at home and weep, fearful that this would be the job that killed them and only stop once she heard their voices. So in 1933, the gang diversifies. This is the year after the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, which is known as the crime of the century. Mm. And the media circus around the Lindbergh abduction is intense. But what stands out to the criminal syndicates is the huge ransom payout that the Lindberghs paid to their son's kidnappers. Uh And suddenly, kidnapping for ransom is all the rage in the American criminal underworld. No. Uh Uh-huh. 
So the Barker Carpus gang gets in on that action. Uh, they're recruited to help abduct the heir to the Ham's Beer Company. Oh. William Ham Jr. I assume it's the Ham's Beer Company because his name is William Ham Jr. It's gotta be. Is there two M's at the end of Ham's? Yeah. Then it's gotta be Ham's Beer. And there's a little bear ice skating. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Ham's Bear. Oh, it's pretty adorable. It's really quality 70s marketing where it's just like, yeah, beer sounds like beer. (laughs) And it's good beer too. And it's just delicious quality beer. Mm. What if William Ham Jr. was the heir to the Budweiser fortune and I was just (laughs) fucking this up so badly? Oh, well. Oh, well. So William Ham Jr. is held in Chicago until his family pays a $100,000 ransom, which is around $2.2 million today. Holy shit. That's a biggie. So after the Barker Carpus gang gets the money and returns Ham safely, they're pleased to find out that the police and feds have absolutely no idea of their involvement. All right. So the gang walks away scot-free. Okay, that could have turned out a lot worse. I thought he was going to die. They were all going to... No, and they do have the reputation of like being mean and cruel and violent. So it's kind of nice. Bill Ham got to go home. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant. I'm sure it was a bad experience and traumatic. But he got to go home. Yeah. I'm not supporting it. I'm just saying. (laughs) Okay, this is not setting a precedent. It doesn't go this way Mm -hmm. for very much longer because J. Edgar Hoover is still determined to expand the FBI's power He's still deep in his public enemy phase. And now he's also jealous because there's a charming media savvy FBI agent named Melvin Purvis who's outshining him. Purvis is currently tracking down John Dillinger and becoming a household name in the process. And this makes Hoover long for his own big fish to catch and more importantly, flaunt to the American public. So when fingerprints left on the hand ransom notes are linked back to Alvin Karpis, Hoover thinks he's finally found an opportunity to shine. Mm. So meanwhile, the Barker Karpis gang is planning another kidnapping. This time, their target is a St. Paul-based banker named Edward Bremer. So Bremer comes from a filthy rich family. They're extremely politically connected. Edward's father, Adolf, even donated $350,000 to FDR's presidential campaign, which is over $7.5 million in today's wow. money. So they're rich. So it's a very big deal when on the morning of January 17th, 1934, Edward Bremer is abducted after dropping his daughter off at school. So it go, it basically goes like this. Doc and another gang member surprise Edward Bremer while he's in his car. Doc loses control and winds up beating him mm. with such force that Bremer's car is covered in blood. And to the point where later when the police find the car, they assume Bremer must be dead. Wow. The gang puts blindfold goggles over Bremer's eyes. They drive him to a remote hideout spot in Illinois and they they demand 200 grand ransom money, which is over $4 million Mm. in today's money. And because of Bremer's high profile and his connection to the literal president, the FBI Mm -hmm. is immediately all over this kidnapping. A few weeks later, after the ransom money has been paid and Bremer has been returned home, agents grill him for any details he might remember about his abductors. He doesn't know much because he was blindfolded. He was repeatedly beaten. Mm. Um, But he says that he could hear dogs barking, young children playing, and, quote, the voice of an older woman praising the criminals holding him hostage. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, Kate and the gang meet up in Chicago. 
They're splitting the ransom money and taking all the necessary steps to cover their tracks. So everyone involved switches out their license plate. They come up with alibis. They take on fake identities. But most importantly, they all keep quiet, except for one gangster named Shotgun George Ziegler. George cannot resist bragging about his part in the kidnapping, which has become a huge news story. Mm. Before long, Ziegler's big mouth does him in, killed by a shotgun blast. And when his dead body is turned over to police, they find money from the Bremer kidnapping in his possession. So before long, the Bureau traces Ziegler back to the Barker Carpus gang, and now Hoover is one step closer to catching his big fish. Yeah. So the Barker Carpus gang soon piece together that the FBI is on their trail. This inspires Freddie and Alvin to take some extreme precautionary measures to avoid being captured. And this includes getting botched plastic surgeries from a gang-linked physician named Dr. Joseph Moran. No. Yes. Like purposely botched? No, I think just it got botched. It got botched. Like he wasn't a world-class plastic (sighs) surgeon. 1930s plastic surgery cannot be a exact science. It simply can't. And also, you know, this guy isn't the best in the biz because he's also helping them launder kidnapping money <laughs> through his practice. So wow. in the book, Ma Barker, America's Most Wanted Mother, they say that on the night of the operation, Dr. Moran, who was suffering from alcoholism, was, quote, a physical ruin. His fumbling fingers did little more than butcher the two patients. <sighs> So both men leave these surgeries in incredible pain. And just an interesting side note, Dr. Moran goes missing after reportedly bragging to Freddie and Alvin that he, quote, had you guys in the palm of my hand because of his insider knowledge on that kidnapping. So he was basically taunting these gang members. Don't do that. These serious criminals who he also fucked their like nose up. (laughs) Alvin would later write in his autobiography that, quote, Doc and I shot the son of a bitch. We dug a hole in Michigan and dropped him in and covered the hole with lye. Wow. I don't think anybody is going to come across Dr. Moran again. And in fact, no one has ever found Dr. Moran's body. Alvin Carpus keeping it creepy. Oh my God. In February of 1934, Hoover and his investigators get a solid lead. In Illinois, they find four flashlights that were used in the Bremer kidnapping, and they trace them back to a specific store. And luckily for them, an employee identifies Alvin Karpus as the man who bought them. And then two days later, investigators find gas cans used during the kidnapping and trace fingerprints on those to Doc Barker. And now Hoover knows with certainty he's dealing with the Barker Karpus gang. So meanwhile... They've all gone in different directions. Everybody's just run, basically. So Freddie and Kate, they go south to Florida. They move into a house on Lake Weir. They introduce themselves to neighbors as the Blackburns, and they don't really raise any suspicions. So the neighbors all think of Kate as a sweet little old lady, and they think Freddie's just a charming, doting son. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, inside their house, they're sitting on a heavy arsenal of pistols, rifles, machine guns, and ammunition. The Kansas City Star adds a bit of factually questionable flair to this, saying that Kate would, quote, sit by a window, flowers on a nearby table, knitting in her lap, but at her feet always was a machine gun ready for action. (laughs) (laughs) So Freddie and Kate live a peaceful, quiet life in Florida for about a month. 
But then back in Chicago, the FBI tracks down Doc and arrests him. And when they search his hideout, they find letters that Kate sent that basically directly point to Lake Weir. Uh Like they can figure out where they are based on her communications. And Hoover decides to keep Doc's arrest under wraps and quietly sends agents down to Florida. So days later, on January 16th, 1935, there's a knock at the door of the Barker's Lake Weir home. And according to legend, Kate opens the door and asks who's there. And the men reply that they're federal agents. And they say, quote, if you'll come out one by one, there'll be no trouble. And then Kate says, quote, to hell with you, let the feds have it. And then the shooting begins. This exchange between Kate Barker and the feds almost certainly did not happen, but we do know that the FBI fires over 2,000 bullets into Barker's hideout over the next four hours. Holy shit. They just are shooting up the place. Just a shootout. At the end of the siege, Freddie, age 33, and Arizona Kate Barker, age 61, are both dead. It's reported that Kate dies from a single gunshot through her heart. So in no time at all, J. Edgar Hoover takes the victory lap he so desperately wanted. He speaks to the press and the American public, making sure to emphasize just how evil the Barker Carpus gang is and how commendable the FBI is for dismantling their group. Mm. But instead of focusing on Freddie and Alvin Carpus, the leaders of the gang, he goes all in on Kate. Yeah. J. Edgar Hoover is the one that started calling her Ma Barker not Kate. Hmm. And he actually said, quote, the real public enemy, number one, is the mother. Wow. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to release a detailed damning backstory about how Ma Barker dominated her husband, never disciplined her children, was obsessed with criminals, and bribed local officials all before her boys went on to become felons. He has to justify killing a 60-something-year-old woman. (laughs) Exactly right. Ding, ding, ding. You got it. I'm about to take four paragraphs to say exactly that same thing. (laughs) But essentially, there's some truth to the claims that like he's basing this on slight reality. Yeah. But then he goes into the realm of pure fiction, claiming that Ma Barker, not Freddie or Alvin, but Ma Barker was the real leader of the Barker Carpus gang. She put all the strings. She arranged the robberies. She approved the hits. And naturally was firing a machine gun at the federal agents alongside Freddie during the Lake Weir shootout. And of course, the country eats this story up, but maybe not in the way that Hoover intended. The story hits a sweet spot between being extremely bizarre and somewhat sympathetic. They talk about it in the book, Public Enemies, America's Criminal Past, saying, quote, if Americans found something almost romantic in Bonnie and Clyde, a boy and girl bandit team despite their murderous ways, the notion of a mother and son bandit team also appealed to the country's streak of rebellion against authority, especially when most police of the day were regarded as only a cut above the crooks they were supposed to catch. Mm. Suspiciously, nothing on Kate Barker exists in the FBI's record before her death. Hmm. She wasn't even called Ma by her sons. She was simply referred to as Mother. Many people think J. Edgar Hoover created the myth of Ma Barker to protect the young FBI from the PR crisis of killing an innocent bystander. Right. So if Kate really was just an innocent bystander who never participated in the Barker Carpus game crimes directly, then this action, of course, would be totally unprecedented. It would be absolutely horrifying Mm -hmm. and it would be a a complete, uh, it would besmirch the name of the brand new FBI. Right. 
other famous criminals' parents, including Bonnie and Clyde's moms, were charged with harboring fugitives. They weren't murdered by government agents. Yeah. So Alvin Karpis himself calls bullshit on J. Edgar Hoover's claims about Kate. In his biography, he writes that Kate was, quote, just an old-fashioned homebody from the Ozarks, a simple woman. Ma was superstitious, gullible, simple, cantankerous, and, well, generally law-abiding. The most ridiculous story in the annals of crime is that Ma Barker was the mastermind behind the Karpis-Barker gang, end quote. Wow, so it's all a myth. Yeah, and it's the FBI's myth to basically cover up like a citizen murder. Yeah. This is backed up by another member of the gang named Harvey Bailey, who once said that, quote, the old woman couldn't plan breakfast. We... (laughs) (laughs) The indignities. Uh, She raised four children. Truly. Leave her alone. (laughs) We'd sit down to plan a bank job and she'd go in the other room and listen to hillbilly music on the radio. (laughs) So to this day, historians have mixed feelings about Kate's role in the Barker Karpis gang. And really, J. Edgar Hoover and Alvin Karpis both have incentive to lie. Yeah. Hoover, of course, wants the FBI's reputation to stay pristine. Karpis, on the other hand, probably doesn't want the world thinking that he worked at the direction of a little woman named Ma. But even if Kate wasn't the mastermind behind all these crimes, and she most certainly wasn't, Mm -hmm. She was, at the very least, complicit. She benefited off the gang's burglaries. She wore those furs and jewels. Yeah. She spent their stolen money, and she cooked meals for wanted murderers and thieves. As the authors of Ma Barker, America's Most Wanted Mother, points out, quote, she let her sons get away with murder. In fact, her boys counted on her to see them through whatever ruthless act they executed, proving that even murderous gangsters need their mother. End quote. Here's the thing. In a time like that in America, Mm -hmm. when everything was so difficult and awful, to me, this is just what people do in desperate times. Mm -hmm. She has to be all in. What's she going to do? Kick them all out or be like... Rat them out? She needs them. Yeah. Yeah, she needs them. She loves them. And what can she do? It's like, I mean, yes, they're murderers and they're criminals. Right. She's going to kind of be like, do you need breakfast? Okay, well, I can't make it. I can't wrangle that. Okay, well, that that's not me, but you should make some scrambled eggs. Yeah. So before long, the Barker Carpus gang is dismantled by the FBI. In 1936, less than a year after Freddie and Kate's deaths, Alvin Carpus is tracked down in New Orleans. It's said that J. Edgar Hoover flies to Louisiana to arrest Alvin personally and, of course, get photographed doing so. Mm. Alvin is sent to Alcatraz. He's there for 25 years before being paroled, after which he writes an autobiography and then he moves to Spain. Hmm. The same can't be said for Alvin's fellow inmate at Alcatraz, Doc Barker. On January 13th, 1939, just a few years into his sentence, he is shot to death by prison guards. And it's unclear why, because some reports say that Doc was trying to make a break for it and swim off the island across the bay. But others say he was just trying to get a ball that had been kicked toward the shoreline during a game. Oh, no. And his last words were reportedly, I'm all shot to hell. Oof. So in 1938, Lloyd Barker, who's now 42 years old, is finally released from prison. He had such a long sentence for robbing a mail wagon that he has missed the entire Barker Carpus gang era. And Uh basically, he's lost most of his immediate family. Yeah. 
but Lloyd really tries to turn his life around. It's said that if any Barker boy was truly capable of redemption, it'd be Lloyd. When he's released from prison, he moves to Denver, he gets married, he has some kids, he opens a diner. Hmm. But in 1949, when he's 53 years old, he is shot and killed by his wife, who suffers from paranoid delusions. Wow. Yeah. Lloyd's headstone reads, quote, went straight, but two was killed by a gun. He will have judgment. He paid the price. Wow. And that's the story of the legendary Ma Barker and the Barker Carpus Gang. Holy shit. I had no clue. Woo! Woo! Good job. I wish we could hear or read your Alcatraz live uh, story, the member from Davies Hall. Yeah. Because I think you talked about Alvin Creepy Carpus. I've heard the name. <laughs> Probably. For sure. Who knows? I think he's kind of a famous Alcatraz inmate. Okay. That's fucked up. I don't know. I didn't know any of that stuff. No. I mean, I would have just, yeah. I didn't even know she was killed. Yeah. That's so fucked up. It really is. Well, good job. You did it. We really did. We did it. Okay, so we just wanted to, you guys may have seen this on social media. Aaron Brown, who runs our social media, and our producer, Alejandra Keck, had this idea when it was our seventh anniversary that they would post the first minute of the first episode. Mm -hmm. And then ask you guys, when did you start listening? And we were so touched by these answers that we got back. There's, I mean, there's a there's a real variety, but there were some really lovely ones. So we just wanted to read them to you because we really love the fact that you guys wrote in and you kind of told us about your where, how your journey on my favorite murder mm -hmm. began. Mm -hmm. So we thought you'd like to hear them too because they're they're pretty good ones. Okay, here's one from Facebook from Jennifer Pruchels. It says, 2018, when I started a new job in child welfare, my coworker asked me if I'd ever heard of it. She had a hunch I'd love it. She had to show me the podcast app on my phone first. <laughs> first and favorite podcast. And now she's my work bestie. And we work less than a mile from the location of a murder that you've covered. But she doesn't say which one. Mm. Could be so many. Mm -hmm. Okay, this one is from at Bell D. Colin. And it says, 2018, I think. So it's like, when did you start listening? Mm -hmm. 2018, I think. Then went back to the start to catch up. Probably not many middle-aged men in England listening, mm. but it's been a pleasure to listen along with you all. I think I've learned as much about the reality of being a woman as I have about murder. Probably a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I love it. it. <laughs> Isn't that the best? That's the best. Okay, here's one from Amanda Heiter. It says, started listening about a year in. I was listening to another podcast and comedian Burt Kreischer started talking about the show and left Georgia a drunk voicemail. I was <laughs> laughing so hard I had to check out MFM. Oh. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> you got the machine on your side. That's you got the, right. the machines, your fan. <sighs> Yada, Y A Y D U H. They say, when did you start listening? And they answer, back at the beginning, baby, when episodes were still numbered with a pun. Early days, remember? <laughs> That's right. That was like up until episode 18 or 20, right? We were bending over yeah. backwards. My friend Owen Ellickson actually wrote one for us. He was like, why right. don't you do this? And I was like, thank God. <laughs> like we painted ourselves into a corner. It wasn't sustainable. <laughs> no, that was rough. Here's one from our Instagram. It's Girtana. 
It says 2018, going through infertility and later IVF, and I couldn't bear listening to or reading happy stories. Fell into MFM, yeah. and you and the back episodes were there for me. By the time I caught up, I had a daughter, and now I have two. And oh. it says still haven't moved back to happy stories. Happy anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> I love this one. This is from... It's a Facebook post from Mary Schroyer Rudnicki, and she says she started listening in September 2020. My daughter introduced me to podcasts, and yours was the first one I listened to. I started at the beginning of your series and remember telling my daughter that I really liked it, but do you have to say fuck so much? <laughs> she just laughed. I don't even notice it now. Thanks for all you do. Love the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Mary, for sticking through yeah. what can be a real barrier. Yeah, a real fuck fest for sure. It- <laughs> um, thank you guys so much for listening, for sticking around or just showing up for the first time today. Whatever it may be, we appreciate you guys so freaking much. Yes. It's just so surreal. I mean, George and I talked about this, but how it's been so long. It's been seven years of so much change and so much like so much growth. And it was just very touching to read those replies and be like, oh yeah, there are people who actually have like a story or a background or something yeah. to tell us about. And it's really, it means a lot to us that you would even remember or you would know the, the background or whatever. Yeah, totally. So we love it. Thank you kindly. And thanks to everybody who helps us make this podcast. Stephen Ray Morris been hanging in, yep. sitting cross-legged on the floor <laughs> with his notebook for seven years. Do you, can you imagine what his lumbar area feels like? Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing yoga. I'm, you know, stretching, making <laughs> nice, sure good. all the good yep. stuff. Good. Taking glucosamine pills. Yeah. <laughs> we got another seven years to get through, so take care of that. It's fine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, really, please stretch because when we get, do our 25th aunt golden anniversary. Oh my God, can you imagine? <laughs> From the nursing home, like oh. we're little old ladies. We've just driven every person absolutely insane. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. It's all about longevity. That's right. All right, thanks everybody. Stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Our producer is Alejandra Keck. This episode was engineered and mixed by Stephen Ray Morris. Our researchers are Marin McClashen and Sarah Blair Jenkins. Email your hometowns and fucking hoorays to myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. Goodbye. Follow My Favorite Murder on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase My Favorite Murder merch.